um, the other night, I read part of a letter from my friend John Hart. Um, Fifty years of friendship. He lives in uh, part of the year in Victoria and part of the year in Hawaii. Um, and, uh, and toward the end he refers to uh, the broken pot uh, image or our metaphor when I when we were with him and his wife in November December the past year I was telling him about this uh, this art form in Japan uh, called Kintsu Kuroi or sometimes Kintsugi which means uh, Kintsu Kuroi means um, golden repair Kintsugi means uh, golden joinery and both basically meaning the same thing and that's when there's a broken pot there's this this art of mending it repairing it, rejoining it piece by piece with this lacquer glue that's dusted with silver or gold or platinum. So there's this silver uh, shimmering seam or golden gleam that comes from it. And it's stronger and more beautiful than it was before it broke. Um, and it's exactly what I feel like I've been doing, kind of slowly putting the pieces back together, in a, kind of like learning to do things all over again. Um, as I said, it just feels like this ongoing retreat back home in, in upper Thailand. Um, I really had to move slowly because of you know, the numbness in my left, my left side. And it wouldn't be good to jam my foot, you know, bruise or break a toe or something on, a, on the corner of a wall or a door or something because I was also taking this strong blood thinner. And um, then I would just bleed to death. Um, <laughs> so I walked, it, it was an inspiration to be more mindful and, and uh, you know, slow it down even more. So it's like really slow so sometimes that I'd be at the other side of the house or uh, having taken the, the garbage out. Um, I'd look down and notice I was missing my left sandal. And I'd have to look for it, be back on the other side of the house or it would be by the garbage bins, you know. And I, I didn't even realize I had, had lost it. I just looked down and says, well, that's strange. I can see my foot and I can, you know, even kind of feel the outline of sensations. I certainly didn't feel the sandal slipping off. And um, Caitlin gave it a name of Toby. You know, go find Toby. You're missing Toby. Toby's gone missing again. <laughs> so I'd have to see, retrace my steps and find my sandal, you know, find my slipper, put it on again. 
it was frustrating at first and annoying and agitating and so upsetting but and even even having to name the damn thing you know Toby like <laughs> <laughs> but eventually I got around to okay you know it's just the way it is it's just what I'm dealing with this practice it's my karmic knot uh, as uh, we call them these wounds that we have uh, and after a while it just got really interesting feeling the sensation of numbness it's like doesn't mean there's no feeling it's just very different feeling and not uh, nearly as sensitive as the areas where there is feeling and there's lots of reasons to be to be numbed you know I injury whether it's physical in the body or brain or um, or emotional and still we can feel an area at least the edges around it where it's numb so my foot began to remind me is that you know I have this meter long um, fin uh, free diving fin carbon fiber free, they're very light but very very long so you can dive deep you know holding with just a breath not with not with a tank not with air tanks or anything and it just began to feel like that and so it felt like I was walking in these fins <laughs> especially with my left foot one fin you know? um, and okay you know I just that's I accept that I began to slowly accept that's just it and I have a lot more feeling than I than before uh, and still I have to be really extra careful and heedful and aware uh, and, and and take care you know just chopping veggies a couple times and just would nick myself and yeah it's really interesting when you have blood thinners you just keep bleeding it's really interesting you know it doesn't stop but after a while it's a big pool of it and it's a good thing to stop it <laughs> and, and good that those kind of wounds are are smallish and you can just put your finger on it and wait for a while and wrap it up and then eventually we got as I might have mentioned the other night we got down to uh, uh, where I was able I took a week off of my rehab programs in Chiang Mai and we went down to the Andaman Sea it's part of the Indian Ocean it goes way up into Burma and Bangladesh uh, and we're about a hundred kilometers from the Burmese border uh, on an island with this 11 kilometer uh, empty beach so it's a rare island un very undeveloped no electricity uh, it's either a generator or solar no 7-elevens and cars and uh, you know the tourists who come there are, are people uh, and families who want the nature experience it's just uh, it's a wildlife refuge for, especially for birds in the savanna and the interior and there's just millions of orchids on the trees and and then the sea of course just beautiful reef and swimming with um, uh, rays rays and and um, and big fish and turtles uh, hornbill and uh, green turtles and 
sometimes sharks even, but not big ones, not, not the ones that Jesse and Michelle sometimes have to swim near <laughs> in, in Hawaii, uh, that are a little more aggressive. And, it, and I just soaked at first, you know, it was just tentative, it was just ocean I know really well, and I grew up with ocean, I grew up with uh, some big ocean, surfing, learning to surf, surf <clears throat> big, big waves by the time I was a teenager. Um, but this time I was like a baby, you know, just kind of felt like entering water for the first time and just floating, floating and soaking. It's, it's warm water, it's at the same temperature as the lake water in, that, in the jungle that I've spoken of, the lake retreat jungle. Uh, whether it's 12 noon or 12 midnight, it's the same temperature. It's a nice feeling. You can just always go in and it, it's, it's a perfect fit for the body. It just feels just right. Not too warm and not too cold. And then gradually, over the week, I just built up the, um, my capacity and confidence to get back on uh, a board. Combination surfboard and paddleboard. Uh, and, and paddle, paddle out around these two deserted, small deserted islands, do a figure eight around it, takes about an hour. Uh, and it felt like a real huge accomplishment, you know, to make it. I just, uh, I was careful and I was practicing my Tai Chi and doing the various rehab things I could do there at the beach until I, I could do that. and. That gave me a huge sense of relief and accomplishment, you know, and and well-being, and that, yeah, this weird, strange thing that happened is indeed repairable. The pieces are rejoinable, uh, and maybe I'll even be a better vessel, you know, than before, more beautiful than before in in various ways, having been cracked open <laughs> and everything spilling out. Uh, A huge amount of the healing, as I said, was the feeling of of metta from all of you who who know me and and sent those well wishes and you know I, I felt all of that from those near and far. I just I felt the power of that. Uh, you asked the other day, you know, can other people uh, do other people does it really benefit them? And I said I answered whether or not they can feel it. It does benefit not only them, but it has this this reverberating effect in the universe. So I, I was certainly f feeling held by that, and, and it just reconnected me with um, the proximate cause of metta, which is uh, seeing the goodness in others. You know, so I felt seen in that way. I felt that people thought I was a worthy pot to put back together, <laughs> to put the piece, pieces back together. And the metta, in a way, was like the silver seam, or glittering gold seam, you know. It was the glue that has been helping all along the way, you know. So a beautiful and innate quality of heart that 
we've created this sacred space for uh, and the silence for this profound silence um, which is how we can do this delicate inner work uh, deep work the, the more it feels externally protected and, and safe the more we we bring that inside uh, and, and and just it just feel our whole systems feel safe and we'll bring up exactly what we need to see and feel and know whether we like it or not whether it's pleasant or unpleasant it's still just the right thing at the right time uh, and you know we've talked about if it does feel too intense or too large too much to hold stepping back and, and finding you know, uh, neutrality in the sky, the blue sky, or sound, or hands, just some other p place, which is skillful means because we don't leave the present moment, and that's the idea. It's as long as we feel that we, we keep a connection with the present moment, it doesn't matter what we do. What matters is keeping the sequential moments of awareness. So we don't have to stay with something just because it's arisen, and whether it's an old wound or just a simple sensation, uh, the breath of the body, there's no, there's no rule or law or technique that says we have to stay with any particular experience. The, the only guiding force in all of this is, is staying in the present moment, being aware. So we can change what we are aware of at any time either out of interest and curiosity of, to explore or out of, you know, stepping back from what's very overwhelming and intense at times. There's many ways that that applies in ways that we'll continue to talk about. Um, touching in and, and backing off, getting a, a sense of what's there, but the timing's not quite right to go into it too much. Maybe we'll be pulled in like a black hole, or swept away like a raging storm. Uh, or, or maybe we'll just start proliferating on it and, and lose connection with it by our, our thoughts about the experience. When we think about experience, we're separated from it. When we feel experience, we're unified. So that feeling, sensing awareness is connecting thinking about whatever the experience is, is disconnecting. Then it's just the, the concepts about the experience and not the direct experience itself. So when we start to do that, that is a good time to go somewhere else that we can park awareness and, and feel the knee, the knees, the toes, the sound vibration, light, you know, if you open your eyes a bit. Just the slightest shift sometimes can make a huge difference in staying present and not being swept away either by our own intellect uh, or by the intensity of the f experience, the phenomena that's coming up. And that, that's why it's so it's incredibly difficult to to do this practice, you know, um, wrong. <laughs> It's about everything that happens is normal. And, and you know, a lot of you come in and report some experience and say, oh, well, 
you know, Jesse said it was normal, and yeah, it is normal. <laughs> or Michelle said it's normal, and I also say it's normal, even though it seemed really abnormal at the time, you know, or, or weird, or, you know, particles flying off and melting and dissolving, or just something really unexpectedly intense, hard, difficult, an emotion, so forth. All of that is is the way the practice is unfolding, uh, exactly as it should, because of the particular configuration of this retreat. Uh, our, our own getting here, our being here, what we're ready for, or what we're not ready for, uh, in the environment, the food, the holding the space of the, the teachers and the staff, everything is just as it should be. Uh, so with that, we can grow our confidence and trust that we're feeling precisely and seeing and knowing and understanding precisely what it is that we need to, to feel. And when we get, when we get caught, uh, then it's okay to be stuck. You know, it's okay to fall into doubts for a while. Um, uh, we, clarity will come. You can, you can hold can hold the doubt cloud, the doubt mental formation. If you can, can hold that in this in this uh, field of friendliness, this field of kindness, this field of metta. There's nothing that can't be that we can't feel metta toward. So even its opposite, uh, anger, resentment, you know, irritation. Um, uh, Violent thoughts, war, you know, all those intense destructive energies and the destructive forces uh, that are happening out in the world, really, they're, they're right here to see as well. If we want to understand, we understand war and, and violence and so forth, we just spend time and, and watch our own heart and, uh, and the mental processes that come out and all the things we do. There are many approaches to dealing with the difficult states, like anger and, and fear and intensity. Uh, metta is certainly one of them, and, and why we're using this week to practice metta and the other Brahma-viharas. Uh, it'll be useful in and out of retreat for all of our lives. So doubt comes up, and you know, ultimately it, it's understanding that, and clarity that dispel the doubt but it, it may go through its various stages of, of progression and, and building up. Uh, I remember having lots of doubt in early weeks at the Mahasi Center in Rangoon uh, as a young monk. Um, and it was just exacerbated by this other monk who was available to look after me. Uh, and it was a hard situation because, you know, I, need, I needed to know basic things about wearing the robes and the, the order of things, who I stand behind and the lines for food and uh, uh, approaching senior monks and the basic things I needed to know. But actually this helpful person felt intrusive at times, if not an irritant. You know, and, and I, I sort of felt like I was a project of his, and 
and I, I'd start to kind of try and avoid and hide behind other monks. I'd see him approaching. I knew he was looking for me, you know. So I gave him a, a, a mental note that might help. So, you know, like we suggest when, when, when there's anger or doubt that we, we label it. Well, anger, as, as, is, as in, oh, just anger. Not my anger, not I am angry. Just conditions arise for an anger moment, an anger mind state, an anger formation to, to come and go. And they might come and go, many of them at once, and it just seems like this solid you know, wall of anger. But with patience and care and metta, we just keep noticing, oh, okay, just anger, just anger, or just doubt, just doubt, and so forth, just fear. And gradually there's this sort of non-identification, stepping back, non-reactivity, just letting that be, uh, and that's where understanding arises. We see it as not permanent. We see anger as a series of anger moments, and, and we see it as just an unsatisfactory, unpleasant mind state. And, and we see it as it doesn't automatically self-reference itself back to me, I, mine. It's just there and then it's gone. So the identification with it starts to fall away in important moments. Uh, and that's when we, as we start to feel liberated. It's no longer dominating the mind and proliferating into story. It's just, just anger and stepping back. So the label that I used for this, this monk that was, felt irritating at the same time helping me um, you know, and I felt judgmental of myself for feeling this way. So I, was, I just, I labeled him H.O., which stood for the hated one. <laughs> so it's not the most skillful <laughs> use of labeling, you know, it, it shouldn't have impact like that, you know, but, you know, it, it helped. It was my way of labeling a whole series of mental states at once. I, I needed his help. I, I felt guilty for accepting his help. I felt irritated by the intrusion and the bother. So it just captured all of that. And eventually, I felt affection for him. I still labeled him H.O., but there, there was no more charge. Oh, there's H.O. And then, you know, I had lots of metta for him in, in, in the months to come. Especially after, you know, I felt confident I could free myself from his, uh, his clutch, you know, <laughs> checking out my robes and so forth. Um, I don't know if I mentioned the other night that the, the, the so-called uh, masquerade of metta, or what's called the near enemy in the text of metta, is some form of conditional love, some form of love with expectation, expecting something in return, a reward, to be loved back, to be acknowledged, um, con some condition that, that makes it not that purely, pure, unconditional love, and we just, uh, it's just metta doing metta. There's no sense of control, there's no sense of, I'm sending out metta to this person, 
you know, I'm loving this person, so I expect to be loved back or rewarded or shown gratitude or to be seen back. We all know those kinds, and we, every, every one of us who have uh, friends and partners and family, um, we live in those various levels of love. We want, to, we want to know them, we want to understand them, so we can discern the difference between the various kinds of dependent love, depend on uh, pleasant sensations and uh, various forms of the attachments, attached love and conditional love, and we want to know what it's like when there's no conditions at all. When it's just even a, a glimpse, uh, like the Buddha said, the whiff of a scent of that unconditional love. It's, it's the heart's release, very much like a, a moment of Nibbana, where the mind is completely free of, of greed or attachment, anger or aversion, delusion, uh, not seen clearly. Ignorance. Uh, the heart's release of loving kindness is a sense of just a, a total letting go, which is meditation, Medi- moment to moment, letting go w- when it's really happening, when it's really working. So a peak experience, a moment of metta, is this heart's release of loving kindness, which is like feeling completely free. Uh, I think I mentioned the other night how as these are develop and grow and come and fill the heart because they're, they're already there. They're just covered and blocked and uh, our armor, our protection and so forth. It feels like home. The more they arise and, and the more they in, in, inhabit our body sense, our mind-body sense, the more we feel still the mystery of, you know, it's a selfless love and selfless compassion. We're not owning it. We don't feel like the manufacturer of it. Nevertheless, there it is, and uh, while feeling its selfless nature, we've never felt closer to ourselves at the same time. So it's that kind of intimacy and closeness without the add-on of an identification. It's my love. I'm doing this. I'm making it happen. I'm sending it out. Or I'm receiving it. That's what makes it so powerful, you know. The, the stronger our, our sense our sense of self, body, mind, built around these innate spiritual emotions, these primary spiritual emotions, the stronger we feel with that, the, the more the more we feel that, in the wisdom sense, our, our, our selfless nature, the selflessness of understanding of, of wisdom, that there's no self behind any of these, of these processes, physical, uh, mental, emotional, intellect, that they all are coming together just for a moment of experience, and then they're disappearing. So quick now, you know, the sense, the sense of solidity, kind of most of the time. The deeper we go into practice, it starts to kind of break up a little bit. It doesn't seem like most of the time, every once in a while, it seems like it cracks open or opens up. And that sense of solidity is not, doesn't feel like um, a, a, a 
continuous strand of sameness, of I-ness. It feels like a discontinuous, you know, discontinuous moments, like as I was saying with anger moments or joy moments or doubt moments, coming together and splitting up. So out of the silence, out of the stillness, as the mind settles in more as the attunement comes with the practices we're doing, the Vipassana mindfulness and the Brahma Vihara awareness, awarenesses, we get glimpses of the spaces between. Spaces between sensations, between thoughts, between everything. And the more that sense of abiding or rest, we're resting in the in-between. We're, we're actually resting in spaces. It's not the clutter of thoughts, one after the other, unbroken, or an emotion. You start to get a sense of the, the pulsing nature of experience, or the wave nature, various kinds of waves. You know, there's wind-whipped um, white water that we see if we look at the shore like yesterday. And then, then there's days when it just seems so flat and still. And then there's days when there must be storms way out there toward Hawaii. And we see these slow-moving uh, deep ocean swells moving in that, in that way. You know, it's like there's a a dozen or two various kinds of ways, depending on various conditions. And we can apply that to our own experience, our own emotional formations, thought formations, bodily nature, and why there's movement and changes involuntarily, you know, just going on all the time. And, 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 a, and a relief to hear from us that, look, there's no control anyway. So, so why try to make something happen? You know, why strain to you know, struggle around, well, the last sitting, you know, or the last retreat, I had all this happening. And I know I shouldn't be attached, but I want that experience back. You know, we just start to lighten up a bit around that. Um, if, if, if a pattern of our life is seeking pleasant experience and avoiding unpleasant experience, you know, following all our likes and dislikes, we're actually a prisoner to a, a, a deep volition our intention that we're cultivating. And we're cultivating a volition or intention of, of grasping and pushing away, you know, attachment and aversion. Uh, that's, our culture teaches that, you know, our, uh, the conditioning of how the world is set up pretty much teaches the, this comparison and competition and and um, and struggle. Uh, you have to strive to achieve every anything at all, 
Uh, and before we're taught, taught alternatives, we do incline toward f- feeling good, feeling pleasant experience, and avoiding unpleasant experience. And you know, of course, to a certain degree, it's, it's normal and it's natural. When it becomes deep habit, and and the, our our deepest intentions are being cultivated by greed, hatred, delusion, instead of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. That, that's the kind of personalities we're forming. And that's the kind of life that we've created for ourselves. We're always looking to get or get rid of, to have or avoid. So these practices are, are cutting through that. Uh, the, the intention to call up uh, loving kindness and abide in the loving kindness, even for a few nano moments, uh, has a huge effect on that deep conditioning. It just takes a, a nano moment of metta to be stronger than years of that conditioning to grasp and push away. It starts to turn the huge volitional ship around and, and feel like, yeah, even volition is selfless, is, is not I or me or mine, uh, but it's conditioned. Intention is conditioned by the presence or absence of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. So in their absence, we will tend toward you know, feeling secure with something that, that feels pleasant and feeling secure by avoiding what's unpleasant. It's just not the way things are, and it's not the truth. And if we avoid the truth, we actually sustain that deep conditioning. As we start getting glimpses of the truth, then we have this patience and and willingness to be with the difficult. Uh, Because we don't want to live from that deep patterning. We don't want to live imprisoned by our intentions, intentions that that are motivated by attachment, aversion, and delusion, not seen clearly. Uh, a teacher I had, like, almost 50 years ago, w- was a, a woman in Southern California. Who um, was 90 years old when I met her. Her name was Amy Loomis, and she was my teacher for seven years until she passed away at 97. It's hard to describe any tradition around her, but she was, I guess, most like a mystic and and uh, self-illumined. It just she was a luminous being, and her skin was translucent, her eyes were clear, and her voice was just just so clear. Eyes and, and voice seemed to come from within my heart, you know, when she'd speak. And I have one-on-one times with her. And she said something that, you know, I would hear over the years following that, that is common in indigenous cultures, or, you know, the tra- desert travelers navigating by the stars, or the ocean, great ocean navigators of, for thousands of years, also navigating uh, largely using 
the, the, the highways, pathways, movements of the stars, as well as currents, ocean currents, wind currents, rain currents, all, all kind of currents. Uh, and so she said, she, she, she told me, the stars sometimes come right outside her window to show her that there's no inside and no outside. To teach her the, the, the truth of non-separation. The same thing we all experience in little glimpses at first, moments of any of these profound Brahma Viharas. When, when we stop objectifying ourselves and others, categorizing, you know, conceptualizing I and other. As soon as we do that, we don't see anybody. We don't see ourselves. Just, we just see uh, an idea of ourselves, an idea of another through the conceptual lens. And then there's a like or dislike and judgments. You know, and we uh, have assumptions or you know, conceptions or misconceptions. And then we live in this objectified world. But the Hawaiian navigators, Polynesian navigators, and Amy Loomis, luminous mystic understood differently that there is no out there and in there no outside no inside so if you ever have those experiences and my guess is that um, you probably all have had them at different times even just for a moment they're real they're more real than anything else that you experience before or after. You know, and just trust them. You know, don't try and get get them back. You know, but for a moment, we're letting go of of time and space the way we hold them conceptually. And that that's that experience of deep connection. That's the meaning of metta. It's the meaning of all the Brahma Viharas connection interconnection. Uh, when we empathize or sympathize with someone who's hurting, it's like this warm, tender heart when it touches pain. Just immediately go into this uh, overarching presence of care. You can't help but want to alleviate their pain. To want them to be free of their stress or anxiety, their fear, or ourselves. That's just the nature, just how it works. It's nothing uh, we have to do. We don't really train to feel those things. We just train to make the sacred and safe space, and then these qualities just are what come out. You know, unconditional love is what comes out when we leave everything alone. You know, and and practice a little, just enough awareness to stop trying to control experience, make anything happen, make something in particular happen to become something or someone. When we let go of that, that's the heart of metta growing and being warm and friendly, tender, that's its nature. And if we get any Brahma Vihara going, they're all being cultivated, as I said the other night. So when we need another one, it's gonna be there. Uh, the stronger we are in whatever might be our portal, the metta or the compassion, uh, empathetic joy, um, 
Stay with that. Make it even stronger. And then you'll see, when, if you're with empathetic joy, but something suddenly painful arises in you, or that you see, or hear, you'll find the companion of compassion already there. Hardly need to call it up. Because you, you're so strong already in that particular Brahma Vihara you've chosen to deeply develop. You'll see that they're all there. And when we need, we really need that equipoise, because it all seems to be coming from every direction at once and we don't know what to do. And the mind is either tending toward that reactivity of grasping, pushing away, uh, or going numb, going indifferent, checking out, dissociation, disconnection. Where equanimity is that profound, just unconditional acceptance, being at peace with, with, with things as they are, right then at that moment. And in that peaceful, balanced moment is, is the wisdom to know what's skillful, what's not skillful. That's why it's not the end of anything. It's actually the beginning or a reset. When we feel exhausted from caregiving, if we're in a caregiving role, if no matter how much metta we're feeling and, and, uh, and radiating, s still sometimes the world feels all too much and everything crumbling and collapsing. It's equanimity that is the resource that we can rest in, where we can find a, a profound uh, moment of rest, of really deep rest, that's not disengaged. The most intimate relations occur from the place of equanimity. Of course, there's metta that connects us in the first place and, and caring for uh, a person's hurt and stress and fear. And there's the empathetic joy for their mood of happiness and delight and uh, fulfillment and so forth. And, and Feeling that joy, letting that draw out our childlike joy, uh, is just an immense gift of appreciation. That at the same time that we're appreciating that person's happiness, we're drawing out this, this ancient joy that maybe we haven't experienced in a long time, sometimes since childhood. Often people think, largely because of our, of our Western culture, that you know altruism, love in the sense of altruism, means disregarding yourself, taking care of, of others. It still largely prevails, you know. We find, you know, with, with meditators who are, are, you know, even particularly belonging to Western theistic traditions, but. There's still that sense that it's, it's selfish to care for ourselves, to love ourselves. Where actually it's just just the opposite. In this ancient discourse, discourse called the Raja Sutta, uh, the king, the queen, and the king of Kosala, 
having discussion. And the king asked Malika, uh, the queen, um, is there anyone more dear to yourself than yourself? And she says, no, there's no one more dear to me than me. How about you? How do you feel? And the Buddha heard heard about this, and 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 realized the depth of their wisdom. And then they had an audience with him, and he said, "I've I've searched everywhere uh, with my awareness, and and I've found there's no one nowhere who doesn't feel most who." who to themselves, feels more dear than themselves. That anyone, anywhere in the universe, feels most dear to them, to themselves. And those who feel that unconditional dearness or love to themselves will never, never harm themselves or others. Take that in, you know, this realization that the most selfless thing we can do is love ourselves and, and care compassionately for ourselves, look, care for ourselves, look after ourselves fully. How can we actually have what it takes to look after others or feel joy in others if we don't feel an, enough of that, good enough for ourselves? Uh, I mentioned how this, the area where um, we have these lake retreats where I had the stroke. Then since the late 2017, a couple of years ago, um, this group of elephants sort of broke away from a larger pack deep in the jungle, about seven of them, and had a baby. And so it, Said, have been around, getting closer and closer until they're actually visual, visual, and we can hear them and smell them, see them, play in the lake and water and so forth. It had been 15 years since we'd started going to the lake, and we'd often see their footprints or see where, the, where they've been bathing and hear them, like just less than 30 meters away. Uh, the first visual contact wasn't until just a few years ago. And then in the last two years, they've just been around so much. And um, it, it, I, I, I thought of them when I was thinking about the, the proximate cause for, for compassion. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned the near enemy. Uh, I did mention it grief, sorrow, pity, and the far enemy trying to control experience or manipulation. Those are all forms of cruelty, just the opposite of compassion. And the proximate cause is, is connecting with a being's helplessness in the face of suffering, pain. And so these beings, these great mammals, the greatest biggest mammals on the planet have long been 
you know, abused, shot, poached, um, made to fear, caused to fear humans for good reason. And to feel them back so close around us when we're practicing metta and vipassana, compassion and so forth, is really affir- very affirming. You know, it's, it's as if you, when, they, when you hear them a trumpet, you know, when, when you hear them walk, when you hear them splash, and you know, we have little videos of babies flipping their trunks up and down in the water and just having a blast, you know. You, you, you feel this, your heart just goes out to them and you feel, you feel the long suffering they've been through. They haven't been allowed to, to be free. And, and, and now they're feeling safe enough you know, through stronger um, care from the park and from the rangers, protect them from, from poaching and, and from people like us who are like the deer around Hollyhock who you can walk really close to. They've just, and now with two babies, it's like they're, they've been allowed to feel elephant again, being elephant. In, in the same way, we're on retreat and doing these practices, so given permission for us to feel human, true human, to feel our human selves, our deepest and the most profound level, our humanity. And how precious it is to be alive, how, how quick life is, how tenuous, fleeting it is. And, you know, you don't have to have a stroke to find that out, but it, it sure increases that awareness of the preciousness of every moment. Every moment is just its only moment, and it goes away, and that, that moment never comes back. That thought, that emotion never comes back. What we have is the truth. Liberation, the liberation, the liberating truth that comes from seeing the truth of things as they really are. And the restoration of our humanness in unconditional love. And compassion. Compassion being at times um, one of our greatest healthy boundaries. Maybe we've used anger or numbing out or intellectualization and many other ways to kind of check out, you know, and use that force of anger to say no or keep away or stay away. And it's born out of aversion and, and delusion, as is greed. Whereas what we could call fierce compassion is born is a moral equivalent of anger, but it's born of skillful states, skillful means, wisdom, and and deep compassion. We can equally say no or def- feel protected or you know uh, challenge what's inappropriate or unacceptable with this equivalent force of unskillful anger, but in this case, it's, it's even a stronger force that's just born right out of compassion and understanding, intuitive understanding. 
by the end of the retreat, we'll, 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 we'll say how all the four Brahma Viharas are ways in which there are boundaries, which they are protective boundaries. to start with a little bit of mudita and and then finish in a couple of days with the equanimity since uh, we'll probably introduce mudita tomorrow mudita being un, unfettered delight joy uh, an authentic appreciation and empathy Wherever we experience it ourselves or with others, uh, beauty, loveliness, um, fulfillment, happiness. Someone mentioned today feeling that this mudita, just uh, a bird on the magnolia tree in the garden, the hollyhock, just had had a bath and it was shaking off its water and grooming itself. And she just felt deep joy for its its delight, you know, and its playfulness and its happiness in, in being a clean bird, so to speak, a bathed bird in a magnolia tree, you know, having a whole garden there for itself. It's a flow of gratitude. Always asking, you know, what's gratitude? How do we practice gratitude? It's embedded in all of the Brahma Viharas and embedded in insight practice. So here, it's just a stream of gratitude when we express that appreciation, that appreciative awareness, or uh, feel empathetic, celebratory um, nature, capacity, innate quality of heart where we see beauty and happiness and fulfillment. Um, There are many kinds of more shallow forms of joy where there's a a hook or a wanting, uh, a kind of uh, greed accompanying what we see and what what we notice about other people's happiness. And it's easy to, to, to discover because you feel the hook, you feel the catch, you don't quite feel unconditional joy. You know, there's an if or a but. You know, I have great joy in you, uh, and gee, I, I wish I could have some of what you have. You know, I want some of your gold. It, essentially, um, and I'll continue with this in a couple of nights. Th- this is the Brahma Vihara that is quite profound in in drawing out our goodness and overcoming uh, centuries of the pain of unworthiness, inadequacy, uh, feeling not good or not good enough, um, not worthy, not worthy enough, and so forth. That's what's behind people's envy and jealousy. They can't touch, they can't feel their own gold, goodness, and so they want to steal 
someone else's is often just unconscious. And it's part of that cultivation of intention that they don't see. They're cultivating what they like and what they want to get and staying away from what they don't like. So this, this mudita, brahma-vihara, is uh, like on a cellular level begins to restore our, our sense of worthiness, value, goodness. And, and so it would be, it's the approximate cause to, to see and celebrate um, worthiness. That's the proximate cause for empathetic joy, mudita, to arise. And the far enemy I just mentioned in what I was just saying a while ago, envy and jealousy. So I'll pick up uh, on this in a couple nights and talk about Kalyana, Kalyanamita, which means a spiritual friend, someone who mirrors, mirrors us and sees us where we feel, feel seen and feel valued, and how that works to bring up, draw out our goodness, our gold. I'll close with um, a poem from the Polish poet Anna Swier, who lived from 1909 to 1984, called Priceless Gifts. An empty day without events, and that is why it grew immense, a space, and suddenly happiness of being entered me. I heard in my heartbeat the birth of time, and each instant of life, one after the other, came rushing in like precious gifts. sit in that mudita space if it's there. Childlike joy, unfettered delight. Just in being here now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.